Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we, as we pause and, and just reflect on those words, He's the way, the truth, the life, the only way to God. We are thankful for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of salvation, and for the gift of eternal life. Father, at the same time, we're mindful of the implications of that. As we turn to a book right now, Father, Joel chapter 2, which talks about a judgment and looks forward to a day of judgment, we cannot sing and be thankful for salvation without being mindful of the consequences of those who walk away. And so, God, we pray that as we open your word, that your word will do what you have ordained it to do. We thank you for the promise of Scripture that your word will never return void. And, Father, for some of us engaging with this word today, we will be challenged to the core. We will be forced to ask ourselves, where do I stand right now before I stand before Jesus then? Some of us, Father, will be challenged because we will recognize that our faith is, is still private. And on that day, our faith that is now private will become public before all. And we'll be challenged. But for every single one of us, Father, who belong to this church and any other church that's scattered across this world, help us to be mindful of the implication of taking the good news of this Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life to the nations. God, we thank you for that privilege. We thank you for that task. And right now, Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to come and open our minds, open our hearts to receive the word that you prepared for us. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, Central. If you're a uh, a visitor today, a guest of ours, we thank you for being here. We're in week number two of a series entitled Wisdom in the Wasteland. It is a series that we are journeying together over a four-week period through the Old Testament book of Joel. If you've taken a Bible from the auditorium, you can turn to page 909, 910. If you have your own Bible, you can look between Hosea and Amos, and sandwiched between the two of those is the, the book of Joel. And if you have an electronic version, then good for you, you just look it up on the list. Um, you'll, be, you'll find it a lot easier than, uh, than the rest of us. Now, last week, we began this series by pointing out that as Joel... Uh, addressed his people, he was doing so looking on a wasteland, and he was offering wisdom in the wasteland. In chapter one, we said that Joel is essentially not a, a seer, a foreteller at this point, he's a foreteller, he's an interpreter. He's interpreting what has happened in the light of what God has said. And uh, from verse 15, we can pick up that uh, Joel believes that judgment has fallen upon God's people in the form of a locust invasion. Verse 15 says, it came from the hand of the Lord Almighty. And we wrestled with this. We wrestled with the idea of, of how God, the creator, interacts with the creation and the created. And we've said that in some way, God works with the creation and the created to lead his people and this world, his creation, to where he wants that creation to be. 
we ended last week by asking, what is our responsibility to that? And I introduced this idea that God doesn't simply, in the Jewish understanding, answer prayer. God responds to it, especially when it comes to the way that he's working in bringing judgment to the world. And, and I suggested that for far too many Christians, we are too quick for God to call time on our people, our nation, our world, when in fact, if we love this world and we love God and we believe the truth, we'll actually ask God to give us more time. And so that leads us nicely into Joel chapter 2, where the theme of judgment comes up. And today, what I'm going to share is a simple truth that the doctrine of judgment should make us both mindful and thankful. The doctrine of judgment should make us both mindful and thankful. In other words, when we talk about judgment, there are two dimensions to it. There are two aspects to it. One side urges caution. It fills us with a sense of responsibility. It reminds us of the awesome nature of God, the holiness of God, the, the just nature with which God rules and reigns over both the creation and the created. But the other side of that, for those of us who've come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, is that we are thankful because we know that in Jesus Christ, the punishment and the penalty for our sin has been placed on him. God has relented from punishing us, and he's beginning that work of restoring us and of really saving and fully redeeming us. So we have these two dimensions to it, mindfulness and thankfulness. And we begin with this idea in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, that since judgment is coming, in Joel, judgment is something that they could look back God had judged them. It came from the hand of the Lord Almighty, invasion of the locust plague. It was a future event, in a not too distant future, when we don't know. Judgment will come again in the form of God raising up Babylon for the southern kingdom, and Assyria probably had already happened in the northern kingdom. But also, Joel will talk in, at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 of a judgment that is coming upon the nations. This is this dreaded day of the Lord that Joel calls that great and dreadful day. There we have it, the two sides. It's a great day. The awesomeness of God would be seen. The mercy of God would be experienced. It's a great day, but it's a dreadful day. And of that day, Joel says to his people, we need to be mindful. So let's have a look at the mindfulness component in verses 1 through 11. Now, what we see in verses 1 through 11 is that God certainly judges. Uh, we see this in verse 3. In verse 3, we, we, see that, we see that Joel says, Before them, talking about judgment, a fire devours behind them and a flame blazes. He's talking about how this judgment would come, probably in the form of the invasion of Babylon. And he said, look, it's going to come in the form of a, of a fire, of a flame. Vipka has been at uh, the Celebrate Recovery Conference in Orange County in California with uh, a number of leaders and, uh, from our church. And they've sent over pictures this week of, of flames, of smoke in the air, of planes going over the top of them, just dropping you know, this, uh, this liquid over there, trying to contain the fire. The reality of this verse has been very real for them. A flame devours. A fire blazes. Now, in the Scriptures, the idea of fire is first introduced in Exodus 18 in connection with God's presence. 
We see that with Moses. It's the idea of a, of a flame, of a fire that leads God's people. But elsewhere in Scripture, the idea of fire is used in connection with judgment. That's the way it's used here. The meaning of the word judge in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek, is to separate, to divide, to distinguish, to discern. When you judge something, it means that an opinion is being formed. The situation is being evaluated. And so the idea in the Old Testament is that God will certainly evaluate His people, the creation, the created, and He evaluates His people according to His own moral character. So there is this evaluation, this judgment that is being made but the reality is the execution of this judgment, and this is the key point, the execution of this judgment may not be experienced immediately. So God judges against his own moral character, but the experience of this judgment may not be experienced immediately. Let's think of it like this. Judgment on our actions is typically experienced in the physical realm almost immediately, right? Vipka and I, a couple of weeks ago, returned from our anniversary trip. It was awesome, 15 days without the kids. But you know what that means. You come back to a lot of weeds in the yard, right? So on the day, on the weekend that we were back, or just afterwards through that week, I thought, you know, I probably need to go out and pull a few weeds. And I noticed that under our patio, there were a number of weeds. And so I was out there pulling the weeds, and I got to the last one. And I was obviously too enthusiastic because I bent down, pulled the last weed out, jumped to my feet in, in exuberance, and forgot I was under the patio. Cracked my head right on the corner there. It bled, and it meant that I couldn't cut my hair for an extra two weeks. Some of you may have seen my hair being long. It got so curly, there were kind of animals growing on the side of it, that kind of thing. And Vipka was saying, cut your hair, cut your hair. But I couldn't. I couldn't because I had a, basically a scab on the top of my head. And I've got, you know, my hair is thinning. You know, perils of being a guy and growing older in my family. And it just meant that I, I couldn't cut my hair because I had this scab that I had to heal on my head. And yesterday I could. But what's the here? The consequence, the impact of our actions is felt in the physical realm and experienced almost immediately. It's a, it's a natural law. It's a physical law. You cut yourself, you bleed. Right? We experience the judgment on our actions in the physical realm almost immediately. It doesn't necessarily work that way in the spiritual realm. In fact, some of the most shocking scriptures, let's be honest about this, in the Bible are actually when judgment is experienced immediately after an action. Judges 7 the sin of Achan, where God judges his sin immediately and he dies. Ananias and Sapphira, God judges them. Peter looks at Ananias and Sapphira and said, you have not lied to man, you have lied to the Holy Spirit and to God. Immediately they judge for their sin and they die. 
See, in the physical realm, we recognize that judgment on our actions comes almost immediately. But in the spiritual realm, almost universally, there's a delay. And the problem with the delay is it often lulls us into a false sense of security that we can feel that our our actions, we're going to get away with them. And some of the most shocking scriptures in the Bible are when God judges sin immediately. Now, the Bible teaches whether we experience the judgment on our sin immediately. Most of us don't. Whether there's a delay in judgment, whether that be for a a day, a week, a month, a couple of years, or whether that be at the end of time. Judgment is certain. And part of what the prophets needed to really wrestle with in the Old Testament is that they were speaking of a judgment that was coming that never came. It almost felt like they were crying wolf to the people. And the problem is, when you do that, there's this judgment fatigue. And this judgment fatigue leads people into a false sense of security, believing that there will never be a judgment for what they've done. They think they're going to get away with it. And what Joel does in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, through this language of an invading nation, which would come in the form of Babylon, through the locust language, which had already been there, is try to get the people to recognize the judgment was certain. God will certainly judge, and he judges on the basis of his moral character. So that's the first part of this. The second part of this is Joel is saying in this section of the text, verses 1 through 11, that this judgment is also universal. It's universal in scope and in its impact. Look at verses 10 through 11 on the screen. Look at the universality of this. Before them, the earth shakes, The heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. That it is. It's great and dreadful. The awesomeness of God is going to be on display, but the reality of that is dreadful. Why? Because who can endure it? Do you see this sun, moon, stars, heavens, earth? The vast numbers of it, it's universal in its scope. It's going to be universal in its impact because no one can endure it. This is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and indeed is repeated in the New Testament, it refers to a day of judgment. Now, the interesting thing with this phrase, the day of the Lord, is sometimes the day of the Lord came and it was experienced in the present. Sometimes it was to be experienced in the not-too-distant future. Sometimes it would be referred to in a way that, would re- uh, that spoke of a judgment that would come at the end of time. So you have a time issue here. When the Bible talks about this day of the Lord, what period of time is it talking about? The past is pretty easy to discern. The not-too-distant future and the distant future, that's a little bit difficult to discern. But what is clear is this. There will come a time, that great and dreadful day of the Lord, when the universal impact of God's judgment will be felt by all, heavens and the earth, the creation and the created, and nothing will endure 
be able to endure it. This judgment is universal. We need to be mindful of that. It's universal. In other words, it impacts everyone. It impacts believer and unbeliever alike. Have a look at these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. On the, bearing in mind the reality that judgment impacts believer and unbeliever alike. This talks about here the believer's judgment. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wild, wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. You see, we need to be mindful. The judgment is coming even for believers. Let's be mindful. That's what he's saying. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we build everything we do on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is. In other words, all of this will be burned away. Notice the fire language here. Because that day, the day, the day of the Lord, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Notice this then. The judgment for believers comes on the basis of our work. Now that does not mean to, be, to say that we are judged on the basis of works. Uh, we are saved on the basis of works. We're not. We're judged on the basis of works. Why? The idea here is that when a person is saved, redeemed, spared, because God has placed his judgment, the penalty for sin on Jesus Christ, the reality is what has happened on the inside comes out. Works don't save us, but the result of a saving faith are works of righteousness. So there is this sense in which the believer's judgment is on the basis of works, whether we have allowed what has been placed within us to flow out of us. Hold that in mind. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. So here we're talking about the New Testament doctrine of rewards. There is a believer's judgment. The judgment is universal. We are thankful today that the judgment for sin has been placed on Jesus Christ, but we need to be mindful that the evidence of our faith are works of righteousness. And that will be evaluated, judged by God. And those who have built things that last receive a reward. Paul elsewhere will talk about crowns. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved. He, that's why we're not saved by works. Even though only as one escaping through the flames. Do you see the universality of this? This judgment on the basis of God's moral character, who God is, is universal. It impacts the creation, the heavens and the earth. It impacts the created, both believer and unbeliever alike. And for that reason, the Bible says we need to be mindful. And part of the challenge for many of us is we grew up in churches where every week a message of judgment was preached and we, we heard messages of hell, fire, and damnation. And the problem for many of us is the problem that Joel experienced and that community experienced where we can become judgment 
allergic. We can become judgment lethargic, and the consequence of that is what is being placed on the inside of us, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, can, we can become guilty of never allowing it to come out. We need to allow that private faith to become public because there really isn't such a thing as a private faith in the resurrected and ascended Jesus. So we need to be mindful. Now, the second part of Joel, chapter 2, from verses 12 through 27, shift the focus, and I love this. He reminds people of the universality of judgment. Judgment is certain, and it impacts on everyone. But then he switches from verse 12 to talk about thankfulness. This is the other side of the coin. Because of who God is, we can also be thankful. You can't talk about judgment only talking about mindfulness. We need to talk about judgment talking about thankfulness as well. Look at verse 12. This is what we read. Even now... Bearing in mind everything that Joel has said, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Now, this is where the good news starts. Even now, even as you look on a land that has been decimated, that there's nothing left, even now, I wonder how many of us today are here and we're looking at Areas of our lives that have just been decimated, where once there was fruit, intimacy, blessing. Now we struggle. What does God say to that? God says, even now, that's where the good news starts, in the dust, at the bottom, in the pit. Now, in verses 13, through uh, 17, what God says is the beginning of this transformation is God's willingness to relent. Well, we touched on this last week, but let's go back there. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Some people believe that the book of Joel is actually about judgment. No, the book of Joel is about the compassion and the grace of God. That even though judgment should fall on us all, God is willing to relent. That's the power of the book of Joel. And He relents from sending calamity. Now, I love this. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. In these verses, and those of you who've joined Central from a Reformed theological background will know that we're addressing here the difficult doctrine of the immutability of God. This idea of does God relent? Does God change His mind? Addresses this doctrine of the immutability of God. The immutability of God doctrine, basically strong and reformed theology, addresses the idea that God doesn't change His mind and He doesn't know real emotions. Okay, especially human emotions. 
Now, I haven't got time to go into this, but there are essentially kind of four areas that this doctrine touches on. It touches on God and time. How does God relate with time? It talks about God's sovereignty. It talks about human responsibility. It talks about uh, God and uh, human activity, human emotions. So these are the kind of areas that are impacted by this. Now, I've said before that what I love about Central is that because so many of you in Reformed City, as the city is known in all of the states, so many of you came to us from Reformed churches and Reformed background. What I love about Central is we hold, practically speaking, what we call a compatibilist position on this. We recognize that God is ultimately sovereign, but that we have a part to play, and we recognize that in many ways we respond like Joel does, and we say, hey, who knows? I don't know. God does. We try to hold the, the tension. But this is what I, I find really important here. In my experience of personal crisis, I find a lot of hope in knowing that I am in the hands of a God who loves me and doesn't treat me like my earthly father did. Many of you have heard my story. I grew up with my mother. I grew up with a, with a father who was remote, who was distant, and never, ever could identify and wanted to identify with me. He was a distanced and a dispassionate father. However you work out in your own theology how God's foreknowledge, God's sovereignty, human responsibility work, verses like this tell us that in our time of personal need, God is not dispassionate to us. God is not like your distanced father who could never identify with you and with whom you can never identify. That is not the God of the Bible. However you view this, what is clear here is that Joel, based on his experience of God's dealing with His people, holds out the hope that when they fall on their knees and ask God to relent from sending judgment, God may well, very, may very well do that. It is within, Joel believes, God's power to do that. Now, does God do that because God was always going to do that? Or does God do that in response to Joel and his people doing that? Who knows? Joel says, who knows? But what we do know is that when Joel believed, as he did, that judgment was possible, was likely, was even coming, Joel knew that he had the opportunity to fall on his knees and ask God to give his people more time. He knew that. And do you know what? We know that too, don't we? We have the grounds, lots of grounds to be thankful. Because the reality is none of us in this place come to God by doing it right. Don't we all come to God by getting it wrong? Isn't it by doing wrong and in doing wrong, in being rejected and experiencing pain and facing the consequences that we are led to recognize our need for forgiveness? See, without forgiveness, there really isn't hope. 
And Christians are thankful because we know that God relented from bringing the judgment that we deserved and brought forgiveness by placing the penalty of our sin on Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And that should make us all incredibly thankful. The good news in judgment is that God relents, and those of us who live this side of the cross can look at what happened to Jesus, and we can say, God, thank you that judgment was placed on him. It doesn't end there, though, in Joel chapter 2, in this second section of uh, chapter 2, because what we also read is that God restores. I love this. God doesn't just relent. He doesn't just place the judgment on Christ and, hey, that's it. He actually begins this restoring work. Probably the most famous verse in Joel, at least after the Pentecost verses, are these. Verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm. My great army that I sent among you. I love that. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Now clearly, what Joel knows is possible. Who knows? He may repent. Is now going to come to pass. And how does Joel understand this? God has relented. God has heard his people's prayer. God has seen his people's repentance. And rather than bringing judgment, he now brings restoration. God would not only relent, he would also restore his people's loss. Now again, this is fundamentally God's call. But he did so in response to his people's repentance. In repentance, we humbly kneel before God. We acknowledge our past. We give it to Him. And we say, God, won't you work in our future? There's a beautiful scripture in Genesis 18. And this is the passage where Abraham is conversing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember the passage. God, you're going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Please, will you refrain from bringing your judgment? Will you refrain if there are 50 people? God says, I will. Will you refrain if there are 20? And it goes on down. And, and there in the middle of all of this, a part of Abraham's plea is this recognition. In verse 27, this is the recognition. Abraham says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. This is the basis of his intercession. Abraham doesn't intercede on behalf of his people, on behalf of the world, by saying, look, God, you've got to listen to me. I'm the one that you chose. He intercedes on the basis of recognizing that he is nothing but dust and ashes. Jewish rabbis will point out there's a fundamental difference between dust and ashes. Dust represents something that has never been of value, but might be one day. You can sow plants in dust. You can make pottery from dust. Dust represents something that has never been of value, but put in the hands of a creative God, it might. Ashes, on the other hand, they're of no value to the future. They represent something that had value in the past before being reduced to ashes and to nothing. 
So Abraham, as he's interceding before God, saying, God, won't you relent? He does this on the basis of acknowledging that he's nothing but dust and ashes. So Abraham is referring both to what he had been in the past, but also what he might yet be. This is a statement of complete humility. God says that Abraham's descendants will be as the dust of the earth. Abraham's descendants are going to be as the of the dust of the earth. That doesn't mean to say that they're nothing. It means to say that they're widespread, but when God gets His hand on nothing, He fashions it into a work of art. Here's the point. I wonder how many of you are in here today looking at parts of your life where you think it lays in ruin, it lays as dust, or even as ashes. Nothing can come from it. It's totally gone. It's totally destroyed. The whole biblical idea of salvation, of God's work, is that the past isn't ashes, it's dust. And when we repent, when we humble ourselves, God takes hold of us and He forms us and He breathes His life into us to restore us again. I don't know what you're going through, but God wants you to know this. It is never too late to come home. It is never too late to repent because God relents and God restores. One of the greatest ministries I think we run is on a Monday night is Celebrate Recovery. And every Monday night, you have people there with these t-shirts to say, I'm one of those people. What? One of those people. One of those people who basically experienced the pain and the consequences on bad choices and bad actions. Life-controlling habits, hurts, hang-ups that they can't shake. There is that mindfulness there, but every Monday night there is also that thankfulness there because they recognize that God and the teaching of the whole Scripture is that God takes brokenness and He fashions it into wholeness. It is never too late. We can be thankful. Yes, God judges, but God also relents and God restores And so when you put all of this teaching together about a judgment, what we recognize can be kind of symbolized with this picture. That for those who've experienced God's salvation, there is blessing. There's blessing for those who call on the name of the Lord. We can be thankful for that. But there's another dimension to it. The other dimension we need to be mindful of, and that is the counsel of Scripture, which talks about a coming judgment and a, in a sense, destruction that happens. And that's for those who've gone their own way and who continue to go their own way. So when Joel talks about judgment in the first section of, this, of chapter 2, for two-thirds of it, he's talking about being mindful. Judgment is universal. It is certain. But he's also talking about thankfulness for those who relent and repent. There is not only forgiveness, there is restoration and blessing. If we want to understand and represent the Bible's teaching of judgment properly, this is what we need to hold in mind. Judgment, it's certain, it's universal. But for those who have repented, those who have called on the name of the Lord, as Joel says, there is an experience of God's relenting and of God's restoring. Living as we today, I really believe that we need to view judgment in this, in the way that Joel does, 
Sitting this side of the cross of Jesus, we should live both mindfully and thankfully, recognizing that this judgment, that the day of the Lord, is in our future too. For some of us, we may experience God's judgment personally in our lives as a consequence of sin. For many of us, there may be a delayed judgment, but for all of us, there will come a time on that day of judgment where we will, be, we will stand before God, both believer and unbeliever alike, and we will be called to account. This is, in a sense, where the, the, the New Testament goes. This is where the book of Revelation especially goes. It talks about the events that will happen at the return of Jesus Christ. And then, the Bible says, that great day will be upon us. The question is, why does the Bible talk about this, this coming judgment, and what's the implications of that for you and for me? Now, there are a number of things I could talk about here, but I want to very quickly give you three reasons why the Bible shares with you and I the details about the coming judgment. The first one is this. This coming judgment is actually going to vindicate God's name. The world has long argued that God has a lot to answer for. How could God be just and allow suffering? Why does He let good things happen to bad people? Why does God allow the innocent to suffer? What's interesting is that when you read the Bible, the Bible never makes an attempt to clear God's name. Have you noticed that? It's the book of Job. Uh, Job. It never tries to clear God's name. All it does is affirm God's goodness, His justice, His faithfulness, His compassion, His mercy, His grace. But there, in a sense, really is no evidence for any of these affirmations other than for God's Word, and get this, our testimony. But one day, God will vindicate His name. One day, God will clear His name. And that will be an awesome moment. That will be the great day of the Lord. And those who clear his name now will be really glad they did. Now, I've shared with many of these topics that we talked about last week, there is so much that we do not know and will never be able to understand. There's even parts of this that, quite honestly, I don't like. But I do know this. There will come a day when God will vindicate his name, and those who have accused and rejected him will weep and wail, as Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, and those who have vindicated his name will be glad that they did. The coming judgment is necessary because in that moment, God will vindicate his name. Secondly, it's necessary because in the coming judgment, this will vindicate Jesus and the gospel. When Jesus first came, he was victimized and led to a cross. When he comes the second time, he will be vindicated once and for all. You see, the first time Jesus came, he died on a cross. He was private, uh, publicly ridiculed, but privately and internally, he was vindicated by the voice of his Father revealed to him through the Holy Spirit. You remember on the day he was baptized by John the Baptist. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God came and remained on him, and there were the words of the Father, this is my Son whom I love. And John says, few people heard this, 
because many thought it thundered. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he was victimized. He was publicly put on a cross. When he comes the second time, that which was private, the vindication of Jesus by the Father through the Holy Spirit will now be externalized and made public. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be, John says, Amen. Even those who crucified Him will see Him, and on that day, the one who was victimized will now be vindicated. The judgment is necessary because Jesus will be vindicated. That which was internal when He lived will be external at the judgment. You see, when Jesus lived, the Father affirmed Him privately. But at the ascension, the greatest homecoming dance of all time occurred when Jesus took His place in heaven once and for all. And the judgment is necessary in order to vindicate the name of Jesus. But the key idea is this, that which was internal in his life becomes external at his ascension and will become public to you and I at his coming again. And the lesson in, in, in all of this is this. What is internal for you and I? What is private? What is personal? Must be made public while we live because it will be made public after we die and at the great judgment. This is the believer's judgment. Internal, external, private, public. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the believer being judged on the basis of what we've done. It's whether what's on the inside comes out, internal, external. What I loved about those baptism videos is that for the 99 people that went into the waters of baptism last year, what was inside, what was personal, what was private, came outside, went public. That's what baptism is. That's why baptism is so important. Baptism is that external expression of an internal reality. It is that conscious decision to go public before people with something that you have been private with before God. And that's why in our church we don't believe that the Bible teaches infant baptism. We can understand theologically why many people will do that. But the point of the Scriptures, the point of baptism, as you see it in Acts chapter 2, repentance, then baptism, is that people recognize that baptism, in a sense, foreshadows the coming judgment. Because on that day, that which is private until now will be public before all. Internal, external. The judgment is necessary because it will vindicate Jesus. It will take that which is, was hidden from the eyes of many and make it public before the eyes of the world. This is what Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, verse 48. There is a judge 
for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. That's the judgment. It's universal. It's for all people, for believer and unbeliever alike. And for us believers, we will be judged on whether that which is internal has come out. Works. For those of us for whom it has, there will be rewards. For those of us for whom that is not the case, we will still be saved because we are not saved apart from the saving faith and grace of God shown to us through Jesus Christ. But we will be saved as those going through the flames. Judgment is necessary. Why? It will vindicate God's name. It will vindicate Jesus. But this is the good news. It will vindicate the Christ follower too. The judgment will vindicate you. Some of you have suffered greatly. You will be honored in the next life because you have dignified your suffering in this life. On that day, that which is private right now, the way that you dignify suffering will be made public before all. It will be recognized openly before all. Some of you have been hurt by fellow Christians. You have suffered greatly here, but you've taken it quietly. You've pursued the unity of the body. People don't know about it. It's private to you, but on that day, it will be public before all, and you will be recognized, and you will receive your reward. Some of us have hurt other believers. We get away with it now. Nobody knows, but on that day, that which has been hidden will be revealed. Some of us have not been fully obedient. We've achieved a lot, and, and we've been given a lot, but we've taken things lightly, and God knows that we are capable of far more than we're, than we're doing. Our capacity is much greater. On that day, the day of judgment, we'll regret. Some of us have taken, some of us have been obedient to the full without anyone really knowing about it. God will recognize you on that day. Some of us who've had a higher profile Christian life down here will be evaluated. And some of us may well be saved by fire without the reward. On that day, the truth about famous Christians will come out once and for all, and we'll discover that some are indeed worthy, and some of us, well, we're not. And on that day, the Bible says Jesus will sit, and we shall stand. The books will be opened, and all the secrets will be revealed. Those whose names are, written in the book, are not written in the book of life, the Bible says, will be sent to their end. Some of us will receive a reward. Some of us will suffer a loss of reward. Let me just be honest. There are parts of all of this that I just don't like. It's hard, isn't it? The great separation in this moment. Does anybody like talking about this? But again, I can't read my Bible and be honest with it without accepting that that's what it says. And here's the reality. Whenever I engage with scriptures like this, I find myself asking, how on earth can I be possibly happy in heaven knowing that there are people I love that aren't there? How can I be happy in heaven if I've been, if I've been saved by fire without a reward? How can I possibly be ha happy with that? How can I not mourn? How can I not cry? But in that moment, this verse comes to me. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. The rest of the verse does talk about the way that God sanctifies suffering, but these words, I actually believe, will talk about 
our emotional connection, our realization that what the Bible says about judgment is true. And for many of us, for the first time, this will be the time where we'll get it. And what we'll do is we'll cry. There is pain. But God's, in a sense, one of God's final works here is that He will open our minds, He will open our hearts, we will be fully transformed to see things as God fully sees them. And a part of that act is that He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. What does all this mean? I think it means a few things. If seeing the past helps us interpret the present, then seeing the future helps us evaluate our life now, doesn't it? This is our future. One day we will all stand before God, believer and unbeliever alike, and and we will be evaluated on how we've responded to the words of Jesus. The good news in all of this is if our hearts wander from God, Joel chapter 2 tells us that God stands in front of us as if He were one fighting against us because He's fighting for us. He does all of this to bring us back to repentance. God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. But it also tells us that if we do believe the judgment is coming, and if we truly care for the people that we live with, then we have to remember why we're here. We have to realize that on that day when everything that is internal will become external, what we do with this message while we live is an essential part of how we'll be evaluated then. And some of you new to Central over the last year or two, some of you have been here for 20 years. I just want to take this moment to emphasize, because I believe the Bible, I believe that there will come a time when all people, every tribe, nation, and tongue will stand before Jesus Christ and have to give an account. I believe it because the Bible says it. I want to do everything I can to take this gospel to people who haven't been fortunate enough to live in a town with 172 churches where the name of Jesus can be freely taught and openly heard. Guess what? Many of us never had a choice in where we were born. But we do have a choice in whether we will take that good news to those who've never heard and that's why it's central. We've, we've working really hard to equip pastors and churches across the country in places in America where, like Pastor Melinda, who we've supported and sent to Boston, where only 4% of inhabitants in that city actually attend a church. Do you know that there are major parts of this nation that are already pre-Christian because children are being born who've never heard the name of Jesus? If the judgment is universal and certain. And if what the Bible describes as the end is truly the end, we will still for certain have tears in our eyes in the moment of that great separation. But let it not be because we have never fully grasped the implication of believing in the saving good news of Jesus Christ. Let it not be because our faith has always stayed public, uh, private and never come public. Let it be rather because we 
have grasped the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have given everything that we have got to do what God has called us to do. That's what Joel is trying to get his people to grasp. And I pray through the Holy Spirit, that is what the Holy Spirit is helping us to grasp. Let's go before God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, your word does say that judgment is certain and it's universal. As I engage with those two truths, as I perceive the reality of that, God, I'm mindful. I'm mindful that because I've experienced personally in my own heart and my own life how you have pushed the consequences of my own wrong onto your son Jesus Christ and and restored me, making me whole when I was once so broken. I am mindful of the responsibility of that to never settle for my faith staying private. God, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just do a work in our hearts in this season where we would be willing to take our private faith and make it public before the world in a way that does justice to the gospel and in a way that shows your love and your compassion, for it is the goodness and the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. And Father, let us leave this place today thankful, ever so thankful, that the punishment and the penalty for our sin was placed on your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us leave thankful that though we may be experiencing brokenness in certain areas of our lives, that you are making us whole. You are restoring us. That where we are is not where we will end. We will be made new. We will be like you. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.